Peter Schwitzer? Oh, yeah, it's the guy I listened to when I made my first billion. He's one clever son of a... Five, four... We're online. The hottest internet station. It's time for The Switzer Show with the guy who makes getting richer easier than running up a credit card bill, Peter Switzer. Hello and welcome to The Switzer Show. I'm Peter Switzer and this week I'm not joined by my colleague Paul Rickard. He's off swanning around the country having a good time, but I'm having a good time doing The Switzer Show and I thank you very much for joining me. On today's program, we've got um, the founder of SQM Research, Louis Christopher, and, and Lou is one of the best researchers in this country when it comes to house prices and housing listings and whatever. And I want to ask him, is this house price fall, this bottoming that the newspapers like the AFR are talking about, is it actually starting to happen? Are the house price falls done and dusted? That will be a key question I'll put to Louis Christopher. Now I'll talk to William Young, and he's the founder and creator of the Campos uh, coffee brand, 500 outlets in Australia and now exporting to the US. This is actually a fantastic uh, business success story. And I was really intrigued when I interviewed him uh, not long before the show, how he attributed his success to a book that I also attribute my business success too. And I'll save that up for when we actually get to the interview itself. And finally, Dr. Pradeep Phillip, from, he's a partner from Deloitte Access Economics. And I want to talk to him about our economic future. Is Australia poised to avoid a recession and eventually and gradually start growing successfully? That would be my challenge, challenging question too. Dr. Pradeep Philip. That's the show. So without any further ado, let's go and talk to Louis Christopher, the founder of SQM Research. Thanks for joining us in the program. Uh, good to be here, Peter. All right, Louis, you've um, looked at the property listings in June 2019. And what did you find? Well, look, overall, we found that there was a fall in listings uh, across the board, across the country, Every city effectively recorded a fall. Uh, some cities recorded greater falls than others. Sydney uh, recorded one of the, the biggest falls that we've we've seen since the commencement of the downturn. Uh, so listing gradually now, they fell off by about 10%. And also that's month on month, and they're now down by about 10% year on year. Uh, so large falls, and that fits with what we are seeing on the ground, uh, where many buyers and many real estate agents are complaining there's not enough new stock, new listings on the market. Yeah, but Louis, is this typical that after you see a, a significant house price drop, where I guess a lot of people would have been disappointed with their auction results, that when prices, the price falls start to slow down or even slightly uptick, that there's a consequence people hold back their supply or, or what? What explains this we've, lack of listing? Peter, we've, we've seen this phenomena on every bottom and, and, and the start of every upturn in the market since I've been professionally monitoring 
the housing markets, which takes us back to 2001. Mm. Uh, and so, generally speaking, what you see is, you know, when you when you are at the bottom, vendors do start to think that potentially in 12 months' time they could get a higher price, so why sell now? You know, do they really need to sell now? Yep. But vendors start questioning the market. And second, there are more buyers in the market as well, which means that stock absorption rates pick up uh, as sales activity, sales volumes pick up. Uh, so those are the, the two primary reasons why you start to see a fall in listings. Uh, oh. and, yes. and I guess also, Louis, if, if I was trying to sell my house, say, 18 months ago and I had a shocking experience um, at auction, I might have decided to lease it for a year or two and, of course, that takes away from the stock of potential sellable homes as well. Very much so, Peter. Now, now in all this, this is what you normally see in the downturn where you, you see a situation where there are a few forced sellers. Of course, there can be another scenario as what we saw back in the global financial crisis in the United States where you can have a situation where there's lots of forced sellers and that's because of potentially a rise in default that are occurring in the marketplace. We have not been getting that here in Australia. And it's something that the housing beds do not like to talk about. It's the fact that housing defaults are still at very low levels, and hence the reason why there's been few false sellers out there right now. Yeah, and uh, that, that is a significant point that uh, the housing bears seldom refer to. In fact, I'd love the housing bears to stop addressing all the good reasons why they're negative, and there are lots of reasons why they're negative, but objectively look at the other little things like housing defaults. On that subject, do you think the worst of the house price falls for Sydney and Melbourne are over, or could there, or could there be another tr- leg down for, uh, for reasons that I'd like you to explain? I think it's rather unlikely we'll see a second leg down uh, the only plausible scenario I could see where we would suddenly get a second leg down from here is a situation where unemployment were to rapidly rise, creating that scenario of lots of false sellers in the marketplace. Mm. Now, we know that the Reserve Bank of Australia would like to see lower unemployment, and we also know that the unemployment rate has stopped falling. It's basically flattened out slightly rising, if anything, nothing to be overly alarmed of right now. But the RBA, importantly, the Reserve Bank of Australia is aware of this situation and they have been responding to it by cutting interest rates, among other activities that they've been doing. So I think it's a very unlikely situation that we'll get some type of imminent second leg down unless we were to see some type of scenario, scenario that's creating... Um, a, a major deterioration in the economy. Yeah. So a, a recession threat or a global recession threat could be yeah. something could create another leg down. Louis, talk to me about how you're reading the impact of the current supply of apartments, the building problems with, with uh, apartments, and in particular the cladding issue. How is this going to work out and affect possibly the demand for apartments and, I guess, the the supply? 
A really good question, Peter. Uh, and it's one where I don't think the Reserve Bank of Australia is prepared for the hard truth. And, and that is that I don't think we're going to see a strong rebounding housing construction anytime soon. Uh, and it is something the Reserve Bank of Australia is hoping that we will see through rate cuts, simply because we do, at this point in time, have a situation where Sydney and to an adequate and, and to a lesser extent Melbourne are more than adequately supplied by uh, new dwelling completions at this point in time. Rental vacancy rates are rising in Sydney. On our numbers, we're up to about three and a half percent. We think that's still going to keep rising this year. Uh, Melbourne is more along the lines of having a rental vacancy rate of, of roughly around two percent. Uh, so it's a little bit tighter. Uh, but we still think rental vacancies are going to rise in Melbourne again this year. And this is as a result of the dwellings which have been completed now from the last housing boom that finished in 2017. So we're still experiencing the net result of that boom now through the completion of, of new dwellings. Now, on top of that, as you've pointed out, um, the, the events surrounding Opal and other buildings which have obviously had major problems um, and need significant addressing through new legislation and enforcement of that legislation in the building industry are very much likely to put off new buyers for some time yet. Uh, and I, so I think that the result of all the buyers are seeing in the market now in Sydney, they're focusing on established property not so much the new property. Mm. And I guess it comes at a time when first-home buyers are actually making a comeback to the market and you would have probably expected them to be looking at you know, new apartments, one- and two-bedroom apartments, but th- there would be a lot of anxiety about buying these properties. Absolutely, and, and rightfully so. Who wants to own a unit where once complained you could have a situation where there's cracks in that building and you are forced out, and subsequently, the value of that investment has fallen to zip. Um, you know, it's a, it, it feels like a significant risk for first-time buyers right now. Now, to be fair, I don't think that the faults that have come up in buildings such as, such as Opal are massively widespread. And I would be hearing about it right now in terms of many multiple, many more dwellings being evacuated. Unfortunately, we're not having this scenario play out, but there will be some more that will come up, which will also take away confidence from the industry. All right, Louis, last question. Just about every real estate expert I've talked to over the last few months, when I asked them what area seems to have the best potential in coming years, Brisbane and southeast Queensland are getting the the nod. What, What is your take on the up and coming area for real estate investment? Oh, this will sound a bit out there, Peter, but I I'm, I'm be, have been coming increasingly bullish on Perth. Mm. Um, it, it is a market which is offering relatively good value in terms of prices to incomes, uh, higher rental yields. We, we know the, that you know, we've been having a mining recovery occur and that will go through all the way through to more projects. Um, so when I look at the numbers, they, you know, Perth's offering the best value I've seen for many years. Uh, but let's note too, prices are still falling as we expect. The bottom isn't quite in yet. Mm. And so 
investors and home buyers need to be cautious that if they do go and buy in Perth, they don't catch a falling knife. Very interesting, Louis. As always, thanks for joining us on the program. Thank you, Pete. Louis Christopher, founder of SQM Research. Okay. It's coming up very, very soon. It's the Switzer Listed Investment Conference. It's in Sydney on Friday, August 16, Melbourne, Tuesday, August 20, and Brisbane, Wednesday, August 21. If you want to come, and we're going to have some of the best uh, fund managers, stock pickers, creators of wealth in this country, they will be speaking. You'll get a chance to talk to them and also ask them questions. Um, if you want to come, go to Switzer Events dot com dot au for tickets um, and uh, also um, it comes at a time when I've recently put a book on the market called Join the Rich Club it's available now at the switzerstore.com.au website and that's $24.95 plus postage and handling look if you would prefer to be rich rather than poor buy the book but if you prefer to be poor rather than rich don't. Well, one of the most uh, interesting success stories coming out of Australia is linked to a business called Campos Coffee. And the founder of Campos was a gentleman by the name of William Young. And he joins me on the program right now. Will Young, uh, welcome to the Switzer Show. No, thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. All right. So, Will, tell us this. Why the name Campos when your name is Young? Oh, yeah. Yeah, actually, I bought the, the uh, company off somebody else. It used to be a small single shop in the back lanes of Newtown. And uh, Campos could have been in reference to Camperdown Park, which is nearby. Uh, but it could also be uh, a reference to uh, the outback of growing regions for coffee is often referred to as the Campos. So it's like the outback for Brazil or for Colombia. And that's where you find the coffee growing. So you find the coffee growing in the Campos. Mm, okay. I thought it might be named after the great rugby union winger uh, whose nick- nickname was Campo, but that was just me extending my imagination way beyond reality. No, well, you wouldn't be alone. We had lots of people showing up in the beginning uh, looking for uh, Campo, <laughs> and, uh, and unfortunately, I was a big disappointment to them. <laughs> okay, so, Will, <laughs> when, when did you kick off in the the cafe and coffee business? I started in uh, 1997 when I first got to Australia. I, uh, I just, I never liked coffee at all um, until I got here. And uh, I still didn't like it until I found one cafe one day where I sat down and it was about 1.45 in the afternoon on a Saturday. Um, I sat in the corner, ordered a coffee, and uh, that coffee was so sweet, delicious, so far from any other experience of coffee I'd had until that day. And then I thought, wow, I'd, I could I could easily make a living out of this. But about all the people that are walking around drinking bad coffee all day. They're all drinking bad coffee all day. And I thought, I can, uh, I can do something here. I can make a living out of giving people something that tastes a darn sight better every morning. And wouldn't that be a delightful way to, uh, to live? Okay, so you, I, I presume you, did you start a cafe or did you buy a cafe? Yeah, I immediately started just figuring out how I could get into coffee because I wasn't in coffee at the time. I was, a, I was a landscape architect or a gardener. 
Um, and I wanted to, uh, I just wanted to learn as much as I could and get into the co- coffee society as fast as I could. So I started working in, in coffee roasteries for free. I started, uh, I bought a tiny $100 espresso machine and put that into my house and started making coffee all night. I watched a lot of videos on Italian coffee making. And uh, within about a year, I was ready to, well, I thought I was ready to open my first cafe in the city, in Sydney. Well, tell us how that went. Oh, and terribly. <laughs> I, I, uh, I had no business plan. Um, I basically bought the cafe on a credit card. And I would start work at 4 in the morning. I thought I had to do everything. So I was, I was making the muffins from 4 in the morning till 6.30 in the morning because I was the best muffin maker. Then I'd get on the coffee machine. I'd make coffee from 6.30 in the morning till 6 at night. No one else could make coffee like I could. So I was on the machine all day. And then I even was the best mopper. So I'd end up closing the, the shop down and I'd do all the mopping. I'd finish my day at around 8 or 9 p.m. and go home, go to sleep, and start all over again the next day. I ended up working so hard that I, I ended up in hospital because my body started to shut down after a couple of years of that. That's a tragic story, mate. So how did you rescue yourself? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. well, um, I didn't know how to stop myself from working so hard um, because I just I kind of committed myself to making beautiful coffee and beautiful muffins. Uh, but luckily, a friend of mine uh, came and lent me a book on uh, small business systems. And I read the book that night. It was called uh, The E-Myth Revisited. Yep, that's I read the book. that book that night. Mm, great mm. book. And uh, I read it that night, and the next morning I came in and changed everything. I started teaching backpackers how to make muffins. I started teaching other people how to make coffee so I could even go to the toilet, which I hadn't done for <laughs> a couple of years, it seems. Well, that's why um, you end up in hospital, the, mate. It's always a good idea to go to the toilet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I, I, I just learned the, the true you know, meaning of of systems and how important it is to train others on, on making artisan products. Oh yeah. And it's, it's a, it's such a fundamental lesson, but the, 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 the Will Young you described to us doing everything from mopping to muffins, it's a, it's a typical uh, problem. And I often say to lots of people in, in business, you've got to read a book like E-Myth. You've got to read stuff like Losing My Virginity by Richard Branson to realize that there are always better ways of doing business than what you think it is with absolutely no guidance or, um, or um, coaching. Oh, absolutely. And, and you know, it'd be a, yeah, it, I'd be a fool to think that uh, I was a fool to think that I was the only one that could do it that well. Mm. Meanwhile, I was getting three, four hours of sleep a night. I was overworked. I was probably doing a terrible job. Mm. <laughs> Tell me you this. Know, but if you can take others. Well, how, how did you actually grow the brand? Because Campos is everywhere. I guess you can tell us how many outlets uses Campos Coffee. Yeah, we've uh, it's probably around um, over five hundred, um, and I, I guess it all started from the beginning. We always wanted to to respect the loyalty of all the customers and the employees uh, who dedicated themselves to this brand, you know, or to the store. You know, I, I I just realized at the beginning when when we first opened Campos the way the way that we did, uh, we were getting the same customers coming every day, and they'd come every day and they'd wait in line, they'd get the front of the line, they'd give us their money, you know, they'd stand back, they'd wait for 
coffee. I thought if I was a customer, I'd be sitting here and looking at this and wondering, what am I doing? I'm, I'm spending, you know, at least five bucks a day on this coffee thing. You know, five times a week, that's $25 a week. Multiply that by 50 weeks. That's over $1,000 of your hard-earned income going towards this coffee thing that you're doing in the same place every time. And I thought, if I was the customer, I'd want to see that I'm contributing to something that's not just some guy's business. I thought the last thing they want to see is me driving around town, you know, in a Porsche with my name across it and sleeping in until, you know, 10.30 a.m. and overworking my, my staff. I also thought about, well, my, my team, like the baristas who are working with us, they're working really hard. You know, we're paying them well, but they're still, they're getting up at four in the morning. They're starting work around six. You know, they're, they're working really hard to make outstanding coffee for the customers. They're probably thinking the same thing. You know, what am I working so hard for? You know, I, I wanted to show them that, that if they worked hard with us, that we could build a brand that could make a difference, uh, that we could get towards uh, social projects, that we could lead by example for other young companies, and uh, and just do things in a different way and have an impact. Really. Okay, so that was yeah. So that was your your philosophy, but still going from you know one outlet where you know, where you're putting yourself through you know human torture. To, what, to a situation where you've got 500 outlets and uh, I believe you're moving into the U.S. as well. How did you do that? Yeah, well, we, we, we tried not to grow for a while. Like we, <laughs> I, I just, I, my, the biggest thing to me was to get the consistency in the cup, in that green cup. I wanted it to be uh, as close to the same every time, no matter where you bought that, that coffee yep. from. And I didn't want to just um, take on any account, any anyone that called and wanted us to sell coffee to them. I wanted to make sure that whatever they did, they made the same product. And it took me about three or four years to develop uh, the training and the system to make it so that we could start supplying other cafes. Uh, because we are, we're on, the, on TV a lot and in the papers quite a bit due to our, our, our high quality and, and we had Lassie Art on every coffee. And, there's, and we are making quite a Good, good noise in the market, uh, and lots of cafes wanted to come on board, but we kept on telling them no, we, we couldn't supply them yet. And then when we finally did crack, crack the code on how to supply other cafes, and and make sure they had the same quality, um, then we we started saying yes to to the cafes who were aligned on values with us. Um, but they had to have the same training, same, the same machine, like the same espresso machine, the same size glasses, the same size cups. Um, they had to make the notes the same temperature as us, and they had to be okay with doing everything our way. And that consistency uh, really helped us grow the brand uh, because people would be able to buy the green cup from anywhere, and, and they should have a, a same experience as what they have in our own stores. Mm. Okay, so the step from Australia to the USA, how did you do that? Uh, well, the US, we got a lot of people coming to us, you know, especially Australians coming to us and saying, hey, I've just been to the US. Oh, wow, is it hard to find a good coffee? Please, can, can I go into business with you in the US and we can open up the brand there? Because the, the feeling was that they really need some good coffee and fast. 
Um, but uh, we 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 wanted to make sure that whoever we went to the U.S. with was had shared values with us and and didn't mind um, our approach to coffee, which also also included investing in social projects along the way. Uh, so we weren't making as much profit as others because we we really wanted to, to give back to the communities that we bought coffee from. Um, and so it, it took a while to find the right partners for the U.S. And when we did find the right partners, uh, they were based in, in Utah. They're Australian. Um, and we uh, just jumped right in. And, uh, and we opened the brand in the U.S. three years ago. And it's it was it's it's been going really well. Uh, there is a lot of good coffee in the U.S. and they're very competitive, and I'm glad I'm glad we could be part of the coffee scene. Uh, but it's amazing how how the Australian coffee ethos, uh, with its strict standards on quality, uh, really um, it really makes an impact on the U.S. market. Our biggest market in the U.S. is actually Seattle, funnily enough, mm. which is the home of Starbucks. And that's where we're picking up the most accounts of all. We've just taken on a couple of amazing espresso bars there. We've got, um, yeah, a few of the best espresso bars in the city that are using Campbell's coffee. And that's purely because of our, our high standards and our ethos. Yeah, and I presume you don't put caramel in your coffee either. Well, we don't, no, we, we try to avoid that. <laughs> uh, we don't want to be too snobby. Uh, but we... Uh, we certainly don't promote caramel lattes <laughs> or, or uh, you know, Irish cream lattes. We're, we think that coffee is delicious enough. Yeah, I totally agree. All right, so with coffee being uh, a popular commodity product and more labor-intensive than wine-producing, how do you see the future of coffee proceeding? Uh, I think the, uh, it, can, it can go one of two ways. I'm hoping it goes towards the place where coffee tastes better and better and better, and uh, and more and more farmers can make good money out of growing delicious coffee. Uh, that's if we, you know, if, if the market keeps on buying good coffee. Uh, but the the market could go another way where everyone just, like, you know, there's a danger that people could accept coffee being of a lower quality, and uh, and you could see a future where People aren't buying the, the a bit more expensive coffee that tastes delicious, and they're buying the cheaper coffee that tastes uh, kind of average. Mm. But it makes the uh, coffee companies a lot of money. Uh, so it should be interesting to see which direction coffee goes. Me, I just hope it goes towards the delicious end. Uh, we invest in 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 luxury coffee or ultra premium coffee, and that's the sector where we're paying where people are paying up to a thousand. Dollars U.S. per pound for that coffee, and uh, and that's a, a an interesting way that a, a coffee farmer can make a lot of money. Yes, uh, it sure could, you- Will. And I think um, what you've done with coffee is a credit to you. And uh, even though I can hear a slight American accent in there, we're going to take uh, credit for your achievements. Okay. No, thank you. Well, I am yeah, I am Australian. My uh, but I grew up in Bermuda in the Caribbean. And I uh, came over here as soon as I could when I was 24. Uh, and uh, man, as soon as I found coffee in Australia, uh, everything just changed. It's a beautiful place to have coffee. Yeah, without a doubt. Will, thanks for joining us on the program and good luck with Campos.
No, thank you. Well, you might have noticed that uh, Will Young talked about uh, how valuable the book E-Myth by Michael Gerber was to him in building his business. And if you want to build your wealth, I suggest you have a look at my new book called Join the Rich Club. That's where I actually try to encapsulate what I think are the big lessons that I've learned over the years talking to some of the best wealth builders I've ever met. It's uh, a very easy to read book. It doesn't take you long, and the end result is I think you'll be in a much better position to grow your wealth. It's available at www.switzerstores.com.au. It's available for $24.95 plus postage and handling. And as I say, if you prefer to be rich, buy the book. But if you prefer to be poor, ignore this ad. My next guest is Dr. Pradeep Phillip, partner at Deloitte Access Economics. And I want to get his take on what he thinks is going on with the economy right now. Uh, Pradeep, thanks for joining us on the show. Pleasure to be with you, Peter. So, Pradeep, do you have a speciality when it comes to economics, or are you an expert on everything economic? Oh, no, none of us are experts <laughs> in that sense, um, um, uh, as you know. Um, uh, but look, I have a real interest in uh, macroeconomics, but mainly interested in the big public policy issues that affect all of us. How do we build prosperity into the future? Mm. That's really my real interest, like that of so many people, particularly those who work in our firm here at Deloitte Access Economics. Okay, well, let's start with the biggest picture of all, namely the global economic outlook. And we've recently seen the IMF, it's sort of downgraded slightly the, the global growth picture, but has an uptick, I think, for 2020. What's your take on, on their take on the global economy? So it's really interesting when you look at the global economy, and it's really important, I think, to think of the global economy both in terms of the short term, but also some of the big things that are affecting long-term economic growth. Now, we saw until the middle of last year, um, the global economy was growing pretty briskly. And then towards the second half of 2018, it started to slow. And it started to slow primarily because of a couple of factors that were at play. One was we started to see China slowing, and there are a whole range of reasons why it started to slow. But the second is that we started to see trade being affected. Now, over the last 12 months, global trade has not grown at all. Now, why is this important? It's important because historically, it tends to grow at least as fast as GDP. Now, it's not hard to see why global trade is slowing. There's a lot of uncertainty creeping into the system. We see every day we hear about the US-China trade war. We hear about the tariff retaliation that are going on. We see a lot of uncertainty associated with this. And then, of course, we've got Brexit. And what all these things do is they add to international uncertainty. And investors hate uncertainty. They price risk into their models. And so they tend to hold back a bit. And I think we're starting to see the playing out of these trade wars, the slowing China, all into uh, the global economy. And that's why we've seen, since the middle of last year, global economy start to slow. And one of the other indicators or responses to this is it wasn't that long ago that we had the Federal Reserve in the US, uh, the European Central Bank, all kind of thinking about tightening monetary policy. Now, along with the Reserve Bank of Australia, 
we see our central banks uh, reducing interest rates, having a posture that is more about growing the economy because there are risks on the horizon. All right, so uh, Pradeep, given that, what is your best guess when, say, for example, the US or the global economy goes into recession again? And, and, and Pradeep, be right too, all right? Look, I, I don't use that R word uh, that easily, um, but it is clear the US has started to slow, and in part because the sugar hit from tax cuts, etc., have started to uh, wear out a little bit. And I think now we've got this global issue of uh, you know, growing nationalism, uh, disregard for rules-based order around trade, all starting to crimp activity, industrial activity and trade around the world, and that's starting to play out. And so, you know, Australia is a small open economy. We're heavily trade exposed. So we, we are also at the mercy of what happens globally. And in Australia, we've seen the economy slow here uh, in recent times from a number of things. We've seen house prices you know, uh, come off. We've had drought and other natural disasters. Um, but the flip side of it is that, at least in recent times, China's kind of been helping us out because as China has slowed, the government has started to pump prime uh, their economy, and we've been the beneficiary of that. But longer term, there's some really important issues for Australia, how we position ourselves around some of the bigger changes that are happening in the global economy where we could be real beneficiaries. Okay. So, therefore, let me just pin you down because um, a couple of years ago, the Economist Intelligence Unit predicted that the US, if it's going to go into the R word, um, it would be 2020. Your best guess, do you think it's going to be beyond 2020? Look, I have uh, no doubt that there are some really clever people in charge of both monetary policy and fiscal policy in the US. Um, and the bottom line is this, that there are still a lot of investment opportunities all around the world. And I think, um, you know, while there's always risks on the downside, um, I think people... Uh, we're more sophisticated about how we think about policy, and I'm I am hopeful that we will avoid um, you know, really serious consequences of a downturn in the economy. That people will come to their senses that we will re-engage in economic reform that is beneficial for the long term, and not just in each individual country, but collectively that we'll start to think about the positive benefits of trade and globalisation uh, and the freer movement of both capital and labour across our economy. So um, while there are risks and the risks are at the moment on the downside, I am generally an optimist that we can solve a lot of the problems that we have and seize the opportunities that are in front of us. So, Pradeep, do you think that the infrastructure spending in Australia is going to be um, like a, a foundation to provide reasonable growth that if it's joined with you know a, a, a macro improvement with consumers maybe spending more than they did before the election and the impact of tax cuts and interest rate cuts you've put all that together do you have a, a more rosy or a more negative view for the Aussie economy 
particularly incorporating your views on infrastructure spending? Sure. Look, I think um, uh, we desperately need to um, increase our expenditure in infrastructure. We have a lot of ageing infrastructure in a lot of different sectors, and we also need to invest to capture the opportunities that are emerging for future growth. Um, the question will always be, is any individual infrastructure project going to generate that important economic and social returns? And I think sometimes we can talk in aggregates and take our eye off the returns that we need to generate, both economic and social, around the infrastructure around this country, particularly the infrastructure the governments uh, invest in. And I think the more we uh, put our efforts into thinking about that, then the better off we will be. And there are a number of things uh, that uh, go hand in hand with that. I think the tax cuts uh, will have a positive impact. Um, one of the areas that is a bit of a bug in the economy, though, is sluggish wages. We have not seen wages move, even though we've been generating employment, the unemployment rate has been coming down. And that's been a little bit of a puzzle in the economy. Um, but the really important thing is, these things might all help in the short run, but what's going to help us in the long run? How are we going to invest to take advantage of the technological change that is on our doorstep? How are we going to take advantage of the fact that there are changing consumer preferences out there uh, for, more, for more bespoke goods and services? How do we take advantage of the fact that global growth, population growth, and income growth is all moving into our region, into the Asia-Pacific region? How we position ourselves for these is going to be really critical for our long-term growth and prosperity. Okay, so Pradeep, what are the big potential um, disruptors for global growth? So look, there are some really interesting things going on around the global economy. Um, let me just go through a couple of them. First, we're seeing a rotation of global growth to our region. The emergence of China, India, Indonesia as uh, economic powerhouses. The second is that population growth is moving to our region. Now, by 2025, we expect two-thirds of the world's population to be in our region. By 2030, we expect 65% of the global middle class to be in our region. And what happens as income rises? You move from basic products to more sophisticated products. You move up the nutrition scale. There's increased urbanisation and investment. People look for more experiences with health, education, tourism. But the fourth thing that's happening is that we're seeing a demographic shift. Um, you know, the work, this is about the supply of labour to produce goods and services. If you think about working age population as a proportion of total population, that's your available workforce, Japan peaked in the late 1980s, China's peaking about now, but countries like India are going to grow over the next 30 years or so. And indeed, India could account for over half of the potential workforce in our region. And then we have some big things going on that will be uh, game changers. One belt, one road. The big China policy around global growth, global trade, uh, technological change, and, of course, their push for power and influence. So these are some of the big things. The mega drivers, though, will be information communications technologies, not just the advent of them, but the fact they're in the hands 
of consumers. And the second big thing that I think will change uh, our economy going forward is how we deal with climate change. Well, that's a big one. Um, and, and obviously, that's going to have serious economic uh, implications. Do you think that uh, we will see um, mainstream economies do a lot more to accommodate the fact that even if they might be wrong, more than 50% of populations seem to believe it? Look, climate change is the big issue of our time. And uh, to date, we've had a very narrow debate about it. We've thought about it in terms of purely the environment or just about certain resources or about energy or about energy prices. But the reality is this is about the cost base of the economy. And we've also had a debate that's talked about the economic risks about transitioning to you know, greener uh, business and a greener economy. But the real debate now is the risks of not greening our economy, of not decarbonising, of not dealing with the impact of climate change, both on the cost side and also on the benefit side. And you know, it, what is the reality is the world has made some lovely commitments around Kyoto and Paris, but governments have been slow to act. And the tragic reality is out of 197 countries that have signed up, only something like 17 have got their act together around their policies um, to meet their commitments. If we think about an important tool like a carbon price, um, only about 26 countries now have a carbon price, and it would have been 27 if Australia hadn't uh, lost its carbon price. Um, and so what is happening is as we're thinking about this big transition, and the lack of government action, other things have been happening. Uh, you know, Peter, you look at all these school kids who've been out campaigning, and uh, I don't want to get into a debate about whether skipping school is a good thing or a bad thing, but this is their future. It's their planet that they're arguing about. Um, and so they are rightly concerned about an issue about their future. Um, and interestingly, business is now up for the challenge. We just heard last week the CEO of BHP um, talking about going net carbon zero. We see businesses around the world who are responding to changes in consumer preferences, who are responding to their workforce, uh, who are responding to changes in insurance markets, um, all starting to think about how they go net zero. Um, because they're worried about the risk of not dealing with the threat of climate change from a commercial perspective. Dr. Pradeep Phillip, thanks for joining us on the show. Not a problem. Thank you very much, Peter. And that was Dr. Pradeep Phillip, who comes from Deloitte Access Economics. And that's the show for today. I hope you're a little bit more comfortable about the housing sector. Uh, I think you probably see why Campos Coffee has done very, very well and I think it's nice to talk to an economist who, like me, is an optimist. That's the show for today. Thanks for joining us. Talk to you next week.